Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. The memories, the pictures will never go away. You think about it cathedral for me it's like this historic building today, today i consider myself history history like history the luckiest, the luckiest man, man on the face, on of, the face earth. of the earth you realize when you walk down that tunnel the history that this stadium seen yogi Berra runs out leaps on larson Cathedral draws people of like faith. Here, the religion is baseball. The spirit of what you get in that park. Yankee Stadium was sacred. Yankee Stadium was sacred. Yankee Stadium. It does something to you. There is something about this stadium. There's an aura about Yankee Stadium. When you first see it, you're in awe. Tradition. 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 It's almost like, you know, the history of the game has passed through there. The greatness of the players and the teams that call that home. What a colossal blow! So many images pop into your head. I think back every time I take the field, it's all the great moments in Yankee Stadium. The most unbelievable feat in World Series history. The great players have played there. Babe Ruth. They moved to Lou Gehrig to DiMaggio and Mano. Yogi Berra. Roger Maris. Nelson Howard. Jackson. Whitey Ford. Munson. Just thank God, you know, the Lord was on our side. There's a feeling somehow that the stadium produces winners. Chris Jambliss has won the American League pennant for the New York Yankees. Winning. Winning. See ya! See ya! See ya! A home run by Derek Jeter! Championships. Championships. World champions. Team of the decade. Most successful franchise of the century. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get going on this uh, here episode. How are you, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon. Good Seats Still Available is the podcast that you have found, either by choice or by happenstance. Either way, thanks for finding us. Uh, and uh, let's uh, get into the proceedings, shall we? It's baseball season. And uh, the um, the clip that you uh, just heard sort of sets the scene uh, for uh, one part of it. Uh, the New York Yankees are once again uh, making some hay in uh, baseball's 
this year, much more even convoluted playoff system. Uh, as we record this, they are uh, knee deep in the uh, American uh, League Championship Series uh, with the Houston Astros. Uh, as we drop this, uh, who knows uh, what uh, the future looks like, uh, but uh, we think it's a good excuse to get into uh, one aspect of, of baseball's history this week with our pal, our new pal, Bob Carlin, uh, as we talk about one of the most venerable stadiums, if not the most in baseball history, uh, as well as uh, all the various other constructs that housed baseball in the great state of New York, not just the city of New York, but the entire state. And Bob is the author of the brand new book, New York's Great Lost Ballparks. And wouldn't you know it, the previous version, the last version before the new monumental cathedral, billion dollars or so uh, that exists now of Yankee Stadium, uh, it's got a picture of the previous version in its most modern form uh, before it uh, met its untimely death, uh, but reconstruction, of course, uh, on the cover of this book, New York's Great Lost Ballparks. And what is it? Well, it's literally about as deep and as comprehensive a compendium as you will find about every ballpark or field or, or, or any other uh, definition of such uh, to uh, to Bob's uh, uh, knowledge. And it, uh, it's, it's a pretty extensively and exhaustively researched uh, book for sure uh, of uh, uh, professional baseball, minor league and major league, uh, as well as defunct leagues, which we love to sort of obsess about too here, Federal League and Negro Leagues, et cetera. All of those places uh, are listed and uh, embellished, some with photography, uh, others with uh, uh, details about what teams, uh, leagues, uh, players, uh, events sort of happen to this. It's it's a wonderful compilation. And uh, we get into lots of stuff. Yankee Stadium, of course, Shea Stadium, of course, City Field a little bit. Uh, the current uh, 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 domiciled uh, locations uh, for the Mets and the Yankees, of course, but also places like Buffalo and Schenectady and Albany and all these other great towns and Syracuse uh, and all the frankly all the teams that sort of came through all of them. Some of uh, many of which don't exist anymore. Certain cert the New York Penn League, which still exists, but you know, how about teams like the New York Black Yankees uh, or the New York Cubans, the New York Gotham's, uh, the Hilltoppers. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's tons of Negro League stuff, the New York Knickerbockers and the Lincoln Giants and all kind the mutuals. And, you know, uh, even the Federal League had its uh, a moment or two in, in New York with these ballparks, uh, all of these and more full of interesting stuff. Uh, our conversation this week with Bob Carlin, as we talk about the various current and mostly past uh, venues for baseball in the great state of New York. Uh, and uh, you're going to enjoy this conversation. And if the name Bob Carlin sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you recognize him as probably the preeminent claw hammer style banjoist out there on the road today, uh, performing all over the place. Uh, he's been all over the world. Uh, he's probably uh, he's written a ton of books about banjo playing, uh, books about Earl Scruggs and uh, the the uh, uh, the various uh, banjo uh, manufacturers of the world and a lot of different recordings and stuff too. We're going to play a little of uh, of Bob's work uh, on the uh, on the outro of the show, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but indeed, uh, Bob Carlin is a a Renaissance man, a man of many talents. Uh, it's not just musical and banjo, but also 
uh, for us, luckily, uh, some baseball history. Uh, coming up for you in just a few moments' time, fun conversation. Uh, you're going to enjoy it. Uh, let's see. How about Ebbetsfield Flannels as our little promotional sponsor this week? Uh, it seems or stands to reason, doesn't it? Right. Ebbetsfield Flannels uh, emanated from uh, a uh, painstaking um, reverence for baseball history, flannels, uh, jerseys, uh, baseball caps and all that kind of stuff. And of course, there are just literally tons of New York teams uh, represented in the vast collection uh, at Ebbets Field Flannels. Uh, Ebbets.com is the place to go. E-B-B, two B's, E-T-S, Ebbets.com. And uh, what are you going to find there? Well, it's a treasure trove of stuff. Uh, yeah, there's uh, shirts and, and, uh, and but flannel baseball jerseys. Uh, you pick your team, pick your league, pick your year. Uh, and most of those that don't exist anymore, but uh, are, again, painstakingly recreated, uh, true to history and photography and all that stuff. Ball caps, all kinds of stuff from minor leagues, Negro leagues, uh, some of the past major leagues, but also various other sports like hockey and soccer. Some really cool NASL and NPSL soccer type stuff. They've got baseball jackets, uh, these sort of uh, beautifully uh, created satin jackets, uh, baseball, but also for uh, soccer as well and, and Negro Leagues and NFL and all kinds of stuff. Sweatshirts, soccer and hockey jerseys, even football jerseys, all kinds of stuff. It is the perhaps the most authentic uh, and true to history uh, sportswear that you're going to find. Again, it's Ebbetsfield Flannels, Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. And of course, we've got a promotional code for you. Let's save some bucks for you, shall you? Shall we? Sure, whatever. Good Seats 10. Good Seats and the number 10 at Ebbets.com for all of your purchases. The holidays are coming up. They're right around the corner. What better way to get something uh, that uh, the sports fan in your life who appreciates the history of sports than by going to Ebbetsfield Flannels. Again, Ebbets.com and use that promo code GOODSEATS10. Thank you to Ebbetsfield Flannels. We love you to death, and um, we appreciate your patronage of the show. All right, let's get into the conversation at hand. Let's talk about baseball stadia of current and your with Bob Carlin. Here it comes. Fun stuff as we go to the Empire State. Please, as always, enjoy. In my research, uh, persistently saw your name attached to something completely different from the realm of sports and history. You want to tell our audience what that is and, and, and maybe uh, is that your day job? You mean the banjo? I think that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I am a, a banjo player. I make tens of dollars playing the banjo every year. And uh, I've spent my lifetime in uh, traditional music, in dissemination, documentation, record production, radio. Uh, yes, that is true. And uh, in fact, in, in the book, I make that point. And in fact, I had the manuscript up and I've lost it. So I'm trying desperately to find it so I can reference the manuscript, the book in the uh, in detail, which I, which of course, now that I'm talking to you, I can't find, but no, I, um, I've written 10 books and over 125 articles about, uh, American and world musical traditions and worked on hundreds of record albums, 
uh, as a performer, as an engineer, I've worked for, uh, uh, and a producer. I've worked for NPR, National Public Radio, locally and, and nationally. Uh, and yes, that is my quote unquote day job. But I've always loved baseball. And I was given an opportunity by SUNY Press, State University of New York Press, in their popular imprint to uh, do a book on baseball. And I came up with the concept of the great lost New York ballparks. And so it's the whole covers the whole state pretty much from the time that baseball became quote unquote organized until almost the present. So there you have it. The natural question, of course, well, there are two natural questions. One is how, and maybe there is no connection. It's just another part of your uh, creative brain, right? Uh, But more importantly, um, why? Uh, How, what, and why, what? I'm sorry. (laughs) How the connection to to the banjo playing and and all of that quote-unquote stuff, but then, frankly, more importantly, why? Why baseball parks and, and, and the New York area in particular for pursuit? Okay. Sure. Uh, there is no connection except for, well, actually there is, uh, the connection is that because I was at stages in my life, a professional traveling musician, I would find myself with time off in far flung places in the U S and first, when my son was small, I would seek out ballparks and, and baseball sites to bring him souvenirs to make him interested. And we would, in fact, play baseball in the backyard, the two of us, uh, when he was small. And, and he amassed this great collection of, of, of hundreds of base, souvenir, souvenir baseballs and various bits and pieces from minor league parts, particularly that I brought back. So that's, that's really uh, how it started. And then once he became uninterested, I continued to go to primarily wooden bat league, summer collegiate league uh, and uh, minor league play. And I've become, I'm, I, and the book is New York state because SUNY Press is in New York State, and they wanted a New York State-centric book. And it's manageable. It's a container. It's not the whole U.S. There have been books done on the whole U.S. that have not been able, because of the scope, to be this thorough. And, and it allowed me to be thorough as thorough as I could, uh, given time limitations and all that. So, so that's really the impetus, yeah. So I'm so the wooden bat leagues and that kind of summer leagues and stuff that probably takes you into places uh, aside from New York, probably like the Cape Cod League, for example, and that kind of stuff. Well, we have the Coastal Plain League down here that we'd like to say is probably or was the best uh, summer program with the best facilities because actually New York, uh, New York, being the birthplace, I would arguably claim New York, New York rules as the birthplace for modern baseball. Uh, uh, 
before Major League Baseball decided in the last 10 years to try to ruin it and turn it into football. Uh, no comment there. I didn't say that. Uh, the uh, North Carolina has a preponderance of historic parks that are used for wooden bat league. A lot of the wooden bat leagues throughout the country play either in, believe it or not, brand new parks, as the minor leagues have abandoned some of them, uh, or uh, they play at like high school facilities. We have a second wooden bat league in the area that plays like at a Cartersville High School, local high school facilities, which are not very elegant, I have to say. Uh, they're they're fine as far as it goes, but the atmosphere of being in either an old industrial league park or minor league park is is quite seductive. Uh, the team in Spartanburg, South Carolina, has on and off been part of the Coastal Plain League, and I'll just tell you as an example, their ballpark is a great covered horseshoe-shaped grandstand, old-style wooden fence park. They were a Phillies affiliate way back when and some of the wooden seats in there are from Scheib Park in Philadelphia which is no longer extent so you get those kind of ballparks uh, in in those wooden bat leagues and, and in fact of the ballparks in the book I think that there's 10 or 20 that are still being used for baseball that are old style parks and the majority, if not all of them, maybe with one or two exceptions is being used by a wooden bat team in New York state. All right. Give, give me a sense of uh, uh, the methodology of like what, what's your, so this is not a narrative, but more of a, um, uh, I guess uh, an attempt at some level of comprehensiveness of uh, the various parks of past and if still around present, um, uh, in the state of New York, right? At least that gives you some boundary, which I guess helps as a sanity check. But but how do you sort of go about, uh, uh, I guess, getting those sort of onto the spreadsheet, so to speak, and then filling them out, so to speak? And, and how do you not get down rabbit holes in the process of trying to ensure that you've got and touch every base, if you will? The first thing I always do when researching anything, and of course I've done a lot of mu music research, so I understand how to do research, is to look at the literature. And I, I comment in the book, at, which is laid out, as, you're, as you correctly guessed, because it isn't out yet, you can't see it, uh, in a guidebook format. With, it's, it's organized by city and by region. So I take you kind of clockwise around the state of New York, you know, starting with the New York City area and then running clockwise around the state and ending up in eastern New York State, Albany and those regions. Um, and then it's within those regions, it's divided by town. And then within the town, it's the ballparks, the playing fields, best that I could figure out in chronological order. Uh but you always start with the literature because, frankly, I'm in a, I'm, I like baseball experientially. That's why I was drawn to the, doing something about the ballparks. I like the, the thing, all the things that people are criticizing now to try to update 
speeding up the game and improving these facilities, the things that they're trying to improve, I like. I like the fact that it's a suspended reality, that it's not, and then that there's not stuff going on all the time and that there's a slowness to it. There's a pastoral feel. And I think that's what was attractive about a lot of baseball to begin with is that it's simulated for the city dweller country in the city. You know, you could sit in the ballpark and feel that you were in a field anywhere. You know, it's like the whole field of dreams concept, which in fact, I was at the field of dreams a couple of weeks ago, my first visit there. And um, so I get that whole, that whole thing, but that's all, that's not exactly what you asked me. You asked me about how do you do it? Well, because I'm not a stats guy, I'm not, I can't tell you batting averages and all this sort of thing. I went to the, the experts, to the guys who, and the women who have researched baseball for long periods of time, to the local historical societies, to the local experts on various regions and particularly on cities and to the books that have already been written, uh, which of course, as you know, uh, sports literature is fairly rich. There's a lot of it and it's very well done primarily. And, and so uh, I've read a lot about the sport and I, I sat here during COVID because I couldn't go to libraries and bought a bunch of books myself online and, and consulted anything that I thought would help me start my research. So that was the start. And then where there were holes, uh, I secondly went to these great websites that exist of statistics and team names and histories that again, the baseball fanatics, and I credit all these in the book. I'm very, I believe in crediting uh, the people that I've, I'm, I'm quoting. I think it's really important. And so that was the, se the second thing. And the third thing was just using ancestry and newspapers.com and to try to fill in where there were still holes. So it's interesting that you you mentioned, and I never really thought about it, but it seems so obvious now that you say it, is is these uh, city and, frankly, probably more importantly and essentially, uh, town or regional uh, historical societies. Um, because I'm sure, especially as you get to the uh, smaller towns, venues, leagues, etc., cetera, uh, there's a rich uh, pride and history there and probably literally doesn't go past the boundaries usually of that town unless you're visiting. Well, and, and, and of course, uh, some of the, an adjunct to that is these, uh, I forget what exactly they're called, but these historic teams or these old style baseball organizations. Sure. Those like recreated kind of league things. And uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Recreating particularly before there were actually stadiums or just at the time that bleachers came, came in. And, uh, but there's a number of prominent ones in New York state. There's, there's one that plays at um, the Fleischmann's uh, old field. That's the yeast guys. I don't know if you remember. Uh, Matt oh, sure. Fleischmann. Of course. 
Yeah, well, they they they're Fleisch, I guess Fleisch Magis, uh wealthy people from uh, who uh, built uh, uh, an enclave an enclave in southern New York State. The town is now named for them, Fleischmann's New York. And the sons were so interested in baseball that dad built them a field, you know, and the one son became so sort of wrapped up in it that he formed his own professional team. And in in being professional, I mean that the players were hired. He would, in fact, he poached, uh, I believe he's the one who poached one of the White Sox. Uh, because he he paid him twice as much what he was being paid under contract. Uh, these guys later lost interest because, of course, they had ownership in the Cincinnati team and in one of the Philadelphia teams, I believe, if I'm quoting this correctly. But uh, there there are a couple of those type of fields uh, that that have uh, these old style 19th century teams playing at them. And so those organizations are, are extremely helpful as well. And there have been some exhibits uh, that I stumbled onto uh, and some online exhibits by local historians and history museums in New York State. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, I learned a long time ago when I was researching particularly the 19th century roots of American banjo that find the resource that no one has used. It's easy enough to go back and quote the various collections that people always go to, but get beneath it. And I'm, my strength and my weakness has always been that I'm tenacious and I want to know more and I want to know the truth. And I'm sure I've gotten things wrong in this book. I'm not perfect. Uh, But if somebody makes a statement, I want to figure out if it's, if it's right or not. And so I, I, I go maybe a little above and beyond. And with this book, I definitely had deadlines that I had to meet, but I, I hope I've added something to the literature. Yeah. In journalism, they call that advancing the story, right? It's like one thing just to repeat and rehash and analyze, but then it's like, you know, what new nugget or two can you add to the mix? Right. And if you're, you're adding new sources and that haven't been either tapped or or they've been undiscovered, shall we say, uh, and bring it to the story or add to the richness of it, um, that then begets more interest and or maybe gets other people set on finding even further information from that piece of info. Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, I, I was trained as a journalist, by the way, and, and journalists these days really frustrate me because they call you and, and they say, OK, now tell me what to write. And you go, well, have you looked at my website to find out basic information about me? No. Have you done any research? No. Now, to their defense, they're they're under deadlines. They're understaffed. I get it. But to me, that's not the way you tell a story. So a lot of uh, naturally and and obviously, right, um, a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the book is devoted to just out of necessity uh, uh, on the on the metropolitan areas of New York. Obviously, New York City being uh, the prime and best and most uh, you know uh, 
the gigantic example, right? And so much so where you actually regionalize the New York City metro area because there's so many uh, parks of yore in the mix. Um, tell me, though, the, the difference between the ballparks that you investigated and found in those sort of concentrated metropolitan areas versus, say, those in more uh, uh, or lesser populated areas. Uh, similarities, dissimilarities, um, obviously the constructs and the, the seating is obviously going to be a, of a different uh, a size and that kind of stuff. But what are the differences, if you will, between the metropolitan area experiences and the, shall we say, more rural ones or, or less than metro? I think there's just a few examples of really terrible ballparks. <laughs> and there's several in the in the book that I say people uh, have voted the worst ballpark ever or this is not a, a professional facility. Uh, I think that there's more similarities between a lot of these parks than differences. And some of that had to do with um, a particular period of ballpark construction. In the book, I, I point out that there's really, uh, in a very broad sense, three basic period, three, one, two, four, three or four different, four, I think, different periods of ballpark construction. And the first is just the playing field, which a lot of, you can call them amateurs. You can call them professionals. They weren't necessarily paid, but there was a lot of facade about being amateurs when they were paying certain players who were really good. So I, I it's a, it's a hard distinction to draw, but the original playing fields didn't have seating by and large, didn't have amenities. They were just, they were just, a playing field where you could stand on the sidelines and watch the second period, which is later in the uh, 19th century are ballparks that were constructed of wood. They were constructed cheaply and rather hastily because what happens to wood they burn. So they often would burn down. These were leased land, not owned. And so the owner could change their mind. You might have to move. So with a wooden park, you could dissemble it, move it somewhere else. You could reuse the lumber. So that's the second period. The third period, which I think instilled some commonality within it, is the concrete and steel period of the 20th century. The great ballparks we think about were all from you know, the classic parks are all from that period of construction. They had actual architects who designed them and some people who specialized in designing ball fields, in fact. But it, believe it or not, the in the Depression was when a lot of rural areas got great ballparks because the WPA paid the government paid to have facilities either upgraded or constructed. And so you got not just secondary markets, but third and fourth tier markets getting smaller, but pretty impressive ballparks and pretty nice facilities. Any examples come to mind? Uh, well, if I had the manuscript up, I could tell you. <laughs> 
but um, or any towns I or know, cities that maybe just uh, rattle off your off your head. I'm assuming that that those are things you're sort of. I mean, maybe that's a Rochester, maybe that's a, an Elmira. I don't know. Uh, 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 just curious as to like how well, big or how small uh, this. Yeah, uh, definitely the towns around Albany uh, got nice ballparks. Uh, I mean, the design parks. Yeah, that's Rochester. That's Buffalo. Uh, that's the bigger towns. Uh, I'm sorry I don't have a copy of the book in front of me. I could not get it to come up on the computer because it closed it. Uh, the The other thing was that you got someone, uh, the successors to the Fleischmanns, uh, built really nice parks. Uh, these These private philanthropists, there was a great ballpark uh, north of New York City on the Hudson uh, that was built by the guy who supposedly introduced yoga to America, who was a baseball fanatic. Uh, he was known by Dr. Ohm, and he had elephants, and the elephants helped to construct the ballpark. The lights were so bright you could see them at Sing Sing across the river <laughs> at night. So uh, there were uh, not just these WPA parks, but there were other private philanthropists. And, and of course, the ballparks of the Federal League, that brief league in the earlier part of the 20th century, were particularly nice. Uh, but those, again, as you had commented were mostly in major markets they were in big cities uh so i'm i'm sorry i'm not i'm not able to reel off uh exact places uh again uh elm i binghamton binghamton had a really nice park but that was not a wpa park that was because of uh uh, Johnson and Johnson being in the, uh, Johnson, John, not Johnson, Johnson, Johnson shoe, the shoe company being in the area. Uh, so you had a combination of WPA and private, private local industry building pretty nice parks. You know, these industrial league slash civic parks that were built. Yeah, and the industrial league sort of thing, right? It, we've seen that in in lots of other sports too, right? Arguably in basketball, the industrial thing was really the professional game to the extent it was a professional until, geez, almost like almost to the mid fifties, right? But but clearly in baseball, as it you know cr- you know creatively, I guess get went from amateur to pro, and 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 you know even has a longer sort of history. But the corporate thing was absolutely part of that mix. The Negro leagues uh, certainly a. a, a uh, uh, comprised a, a bit of that dynamic too. Um, actually, let me ask you about the Negro Leagues. Um, how much mm-hmm. or how little did you come across uh, parks, shall we say, specifically designed for or uh, utilized by Negro League teams or, or were the majority of them, because you know the Negro Leagues obviously had six or seven, depending on which historian you talk to, major demarcations, but there was a whole bunch of minor league uh, uh leagues and, and teams too. And there's also the barnstorming mm-hmm. thing, right? So I, I don't know how much or how little you were able to kind of uh, uh, ascertain, I guess, on the on the Negro League front when it came to parks, and if any of them uh, were exclusive to them or not. Yeah, the um, 
I made a special point to stretch the definition of professional to include black ball players and to include female ball players and to include barnstormers to an extent that I could, considering I wasn't really looking at barnstorming teams, but if there were particular teams like uh, some of the uh, Negro League teams, the women's uh, barnstorming teams, or teams like uh, that went under Native American monikers, whether or not they were really exclusively uh, made up of 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 those players, I, I mentioned them uh, as playing in certain parks. You're correct that mostly these teams were barnstorming, or even if they were professional, they didn't have a home stadium they would move around because uh, that was how they made their living. That's how they made their money. Yeah, or filling in the blanks, uh, of filling in the blanks when teams are out of town, right? You know, fill up the, 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 yes, the, the, the yes, you know, chance to yes. make more dough. Well, and I do mention there was uh, there were several facilities in Harlem, particularly that were utilized by black ball players. You might call them semi-pro. You might call them pro. It just depends on your definition, I suppose. Uh, there were uh, most famously uh, in the. Um, Albany area, um, again, I think it's Schenectady. Uh, again, I don't have it in front of me, and so I can't quote exactly. Schenectady, there was there was a history of black baseball, organized black baseball that played in several different facilities. Uh, of course, one of the earliest documented uh, black baseball players in the pros played in New York State quite extensively before uh, there became a gentleman's agreement to exclude uh, black players from, from the white leagues to make them all white. Uh, and so uh, I do mention, you know, several of those facilities that were devoted to these uh, New York state based teams, but I also mention a lot of the, the barnstorming teams, for instance. And of course there were, a New York black Yankees and a New York black giants. And sometimes, as you know, it's very hard to keep track of who's who, because a lot of teams had very similar names and use these very shifting roster of players. Informal names, right? The sports writers yeah. kind of nicknaming yeah. them yeah. unofficially. And that became, you know, and if you're doing research, right, that could take you down a lot of different rabbit holes because they're like the Brooklyn Robins. And I mean, these could, these teams were referred to, or even in the earlier days, like the feds, right? The, the chai feds and the, you know, but those weren't, were they the real names? Were they not? I mean, I, that's got to be just maddening at some point as you're trying to research and ascertain where these teams are playing. Or maybe maybe that was the easier part because they actually had to at least say where they're playing. Yeah, but for instance, I list House of David. Well, it doesn't say in the newspaper which House of David team it is because there were at least two distinct House of David teams and maybe even more. Uh, that was another place I just was on my travels. I went to Michigan to the, the, the guy who's the expert on House of David baseball, who has a little museum and who has just produced 
participate in a documentary that should be coming to public television pretty soon on the house of David. Uh, well, you, you know, you may, Harbor, Michigan. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that. a, that's a great story that we want to uh, find uh, somebody to talk to about too. Cause that's a, uh, that's a, three stories in one i guess right there but you mentioned schenectady earlier on right so i just i I, yeah i have the luxury of having the uh the manuscript in front of me from your uh, your press people but i i think albert grounds and uh also you have um uh, you call it driving park county fairgrounds slash racing park all sort of one uh, evolved uh, kind of thing and, and but this is a really good example of how you kind of lay it out right you you kind of talk, talk about location and the various you know, dimensions and the the, the, the various uh, years and stuff. Um, some fun facts were available. But then you also talk about the home teams, um, which is yes. fascinating because now now you either wittingly or unwittingly get involved in like, well, what leagues were they uh, part of? And maybe that's not your uh, your your mission with this book. But, you know, teams like the Mohawks and the Alerts. And the ancient cities, right. uh, the Schenectady Dorps, right. right? I mean, the Frog Alley yeah. Bunch. I mean, you know, these, this, these, are, these are just great names by themselves. I, I don't care how long they've existed. The fact that they did exist uh, is fascinating. Right. And I, I suspect that those may be, uh, again, rabbit holes for you that you, you know, number one, you want to ascertain. But number two, <laughs> Frog Alley Bunch, where does that come from, right? Yeah, it become it comes from the river and from the fact that when it flooded, I think it left the street flooded full of frogs. I think is what I said. Uh, the some of the teams I was able to identify leagues, and others I wasn't. And you can you can only go you can only do so much. You know, it's you got to sometimes learn when it's time to put the book down and just. You'll fix it later, <laughs> or, or or hand it to somebody else, either either through publication right. and people write exactly. in, or you know the local exactly. the local historical society goes further and and goes deeper for themselves. Exactly, exactly, and and but a lot of times it's it's very you're like you're saying it's very confusing because the international this is not a real thing, but the international league one year becomes the international painting league the next year and the next year it becomes the international new york league and then the next year it morphs into the new york pen league and then it morphs into the pen new york league and and so you know you do the best you can in following all of these detours and like i said i'm not a stats guy and the stats guys i'm sure are sitting there which is great to have them because i'm not that's not me I wanted to do a book that honestly people could have in their hands in a location and go and look at the site or read. And while you're there, read some fun facts about the team and about the play and look a little bit about what some of the team names were and maybe get some pride in their local, in their locale and in who played there. You know, it's 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 not supposed to be a scholarly book. It's supposed to be uh, more of a a book for the baseball enthusiast who wants to go see the site of um, the original place where they played baseball in Rochester downtown. Or uh, yeah, I mean, look, you, know, I, look, you go back to the Schenectady example. I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, uh, the first pro game played. Um, 
uh, in Schenectady, uh, and this will get you into different worlds, right? Was a, a game if, between the local team, I don't know which one it was at the time, and the New York Giants, right? So this is in what, uh, the late 1800s, I guess. And, you know, the New York Giants obviously were probably at that time part of whatever, and don't quote me on what league it was at that point, right? But but professional is professionals gets, right? Um, but now you're talking right. about two leagues, if you will, meeting in an exhibition game, and that just sends you in a whole nother direction. But the fact that you could document the fact that these, these games happened uh, and this was a place by which they were they were encompassed is is you know pretty important to document. I hope so. And like I said, other people have done a lot of this legwork, and you can read their work. Uh, there's there's a number of great baseball imprints out there that you can get lost in. Uh, McFarland being one of them, whom I've written. I have to say, I have a I have. A, a, I have game with them because I've written music books for them, but they have a great baseball list and I've used a lot of their, their books, but I've really, there are local experts that, that I've relied on that have written many, you know, series of expert books like the Schenectady. There was, there's a local historian who wrote a whole series of books on Schenectady baseball and self-published primarily. And they're great. And, uh, I just hope I've done their their work justice and try to make it a little more accessible to the to a wider public. All right, what's this? Prize picks. My goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, I just literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or, frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, They're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, How about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, In basketball, that could be three-point shot attempts made, uh, et cetera. Uh, Literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports, sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf, uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, Try them out. It's really easy, and it's a hell of a lot of fun, and you can win big bucks, too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you 
as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to PrizePicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com, and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the prize picks app and get that instant deposit match right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, prize picks. And now back to our conversation. Let's talk about more of the modern ones. So the, the post, uh, shall we say, concrete and steel era uh, things, which mm-hmm. I guess would be your fourth mm-hmm. sort of ring of of evolution. Um, I, I guess the two questions there. Number one, what's your, and everybody's got a different opinion, right? But what's your line of demarcation between sort of version three of Stadia and and the quote unquote more modern versions? And then number two, um, are we actually talking about still a whole, a bunch not many, but a bunch of those from that third generation, the steel and concrete, that have somehow still main, been maintained and still exist, right, to, to this day. Very few of them, but those are probably some some gems that you also probably want to call out. Yeah, uh, there – let me see if I can quickly find my list of the the wooden bat team stadiums that are in use the stadiums that are in use by the wooden bats. And I don't know if I can find it quickly. There it is. Okay. So these are, these are some of the old parks that are still in use in New York state. Dietrich park. That's Jamestown. Sal Magley park. That's Niagara falls. Uh, Sal Magley is great. He was the, he was known, I, I think as the, they have a barber chair or they did outside of the stadium because he was known as a pitcher to, to for close shades. He'd throw the ball so close. Uh, Donovan, which is uh, also called Murnane Field, uh, Utica. Damish Field, Oneonta. Canteen Field, Saugerties. Uh, Alex J. Duffy Fairgrounds in Watertown, McDonough Park, Geneva, Dyer's, Dwyer Stadium in Batavia, Falcon Park in Auburn. Uh, those are uh, uh, Dunfield in Elmira, Bradner Stadium in Olean, Mohawk Valley Diamond Dogs play in the Veterans Memorial Park in Little Falls. These are all old style parks that have survived. A lot of them have been renovated and some of them are newer parks a newer style. Uh, Col- uh, Colburn park uh, in little falls, I believe shuttle shuttleworth park in Amsterdam, Eastfield in Glen falls, Maple city park, which is Hornell. Uh, so and they, these are these are older parks that have been. These are older parks that have that went that are either minor league facility. They were minor league, or maybe 
way back they saw some professional play uh, in uh, major league teams use them occasionally. Uh, and they're now being used by wooden bat league uh, teams, which has kept them going. And some of them, the facades are original and the interiors have been altered. Some of them are newer. And what I categorize, categorize is the, like we think of like the classic and the reason it's on the cover is because it is the classic, although I know that will raise the ire of, I, yeah, I want to get to that. Other, I definitely want to get to that. Some of the baseball fans. And it wasn't initially my choice, honestly. Uh, Yankee Stadium is on the cover of the book, the classic one, the the concrete and steel one that was built in the 20s and redone several times. Well, let's let's talk about let, let's talk about that for a second. Since you brought it up, because okay. I mean, because it does get us to the modern era and all that kind of stuff. So um, the book, uh, as we record this, it will not be uh, out until uh, I think the first week of October. We'll obviously promote the heck out of it. As a pre-order, Thank God you. forbid. Um, uh, yeah. But the picture that you've got there is of said Yankee Stadium, but it's the it, it looks like it's circa early 1980s, maybe 1980 in particular. Um, no, no, no. I'm no, sorry, no, it's 1976. My mistake. Um, no, it's it's older than that, I believe. Okay. What is it? What does the credit say? <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me let me make sure I get this correct here. I want to. Um... You're probably right. I I don't remember. I thought it was it was like a '60s picture or earlier. No. So it's not, and that's why I'm bringing it up. So the, oh, okay. the, the picture, yeah, the picture is of Yankee Stadium, but it's definitely post '76 renovation. Okay. It's got those Yankee Stadium letters. Uh, uh, I think Keith Oberman actually owns a couple of those letters, uh, if, if, he, if he can believe yeah. it. Um, <laughs> but no, and this is vivid for me because I remember going to a game okay. in 76. So right. Right. I guess the question in there is, so when you got the cover and it's titled New York's Great Lost yeah. Ballparks, um, yeah, that clearly you're good, right? Because that stadium regardless of what renovation it was or is, uh, is no longer, right? Because it's been replaced by the new cathedral that that is the whatever Yankee yeah. Stadium is now, yeah. the, ma the the mausoleum, yeah. the detractors, right? Um, but that said, it's interesting that that picture was chosen because there are even people who look at that 76 renovation and go, ah, you know, that wasn't, yeah, some great memories for sure. Those late 70s Yankees teams are very memorable, but not certainly... The previous version, say right. from the '50s, right, which had all of that, right. you know, uh, uh, right. ornateness and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, you know, um, right. you're opening yourself. You're going to be opening, which is good. I mean, if people buy the book and, and understand it, but um, I, I guess the question in there is, um, how do you treat Yankee Stadium because it is so uh, essential in in the in this story? You mean how do I treat it in the book, or why is this photo on the cover? Yes. <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, I treat it in the book as the whole history of it. I, I go through the whole thing from the designers and the architects involved. Uh, of course, I've talked all in the book about the previous stadiums where uh, the team had played and, and the ownership by, the, the, by Colonel Rupert and, and this whole thing and the whole history of the team and the fact that they were playing at the polo grounds, which was untenable. <laughs> because Rupert and, and John McGraw didn't get along. And, you know, the Giants felt like it was their stadium. 
you know, and the Yankees were interlopers. Uh, and the Yankees tried several other locations that didn't work out very well. And, and so eventually it was decided to build this, this big new stadium. And, you know, Justin using, I know, again, I'm going to, I might get criticized because I use a Billy Crystal quote that was in Ken Burns' series, which I think his series, you can, you know, it's controversial. A lot of, I'm sure a lot of the baseball historians don't like the way Ken uh, Burns presented baseball. And some people like it and some people don't. And a lot of the prime historians are in it and a lot aren't, you know? So you're always going to be divisive. You're always going to get somebody mad. Uh, And so in the book, Obviously, I go through the whole history of it and and all the pertinent facts and talk about all the renovations in a dispassionate way. I'm not taking any sides, but certainly by opening with Crystal's quote, he had a similar experience when he went in the 50s to what I had when I went in around 1960 for the first time when I was a kid. It's just was like walking into this massive, incredible space. And, you know, the grass was so green and the sky was so blue and the lights were so bright and it was amazing. And the uniforms were so white. That's, that's the way a kid views it. And in many ways, part of the book, I try to view it through that lens. Now, why is that picture on the cover? I didn't choose the picture for the cover, by the way. That was the designer that chose it. Why is the picture in the book? Honestly, because again, it's commercial considerations. It's what could we get to use? You you can't get all all images you want to use. And this is just the reality of of doing a book that. And by the way, the images we have in the book, I'm very grateful to a lot of people who provided permission for us to use things. Secondly, even though it's a baseball book, honestly, it's it's not going to sell a million, you know. Uh, And so we had economic considerations, what was available to us and that. And I'm sure they put it on the cover partially because it's in color and they wanted a color image for the cover. And a lot of the historic images are in black and white and honestly are are not exceptional quality because a lot of them are copies of copies that have survived. A lot of them come out of newspapers. And so uh, that's, that's just the commercial considerations. But I think that we, we give uh, a lot of good, in depth as you can in this format of this book, history of, of Yankee Stadium. And we don't favor it over really in the book. We don't favor it over the smaller facilities, uh, nor give it any more weight than we give Elmira or Rochester or Binghamton 
or Buffalo or any of those places. No, and the, and the city obviously gets a disproportionate amount of attention because it's New York City, for God's sakes, right? But but the, the Pandora's box that you open up. Look, I get that. That makes t- t- total sense. Um, but it's good. Whatever whatever draws attention, right? And and or you know debate or controversy and stuff. Whatever it sells books, if you will. Uh, certainly can't hurt in that regard. There's also there's also a reason why Yankee Stadium is on that cover, not let's say Shea Stadium, for God's sakes, right? Uh, oh my God! Right. Okay. Let's. Let, we ahead. can talk about Shea Stadium. Sure, we have we have in the past. Love to. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a baseball yeah. cathedral, but it was also not. You know, it was not. It was multi-purpose, right? Well, I make that point in the book. It was really that's the begin to me. That's the beginning of the end. That era. Uh, and, and, and I discussed this in the book that, and I, I alluded to this earlier about how the wooden stadiums were wooden because the owner, the baseball team owners didn't own the land. The land was generally leased. And so the types of stadiums that are built to some degree are influenced at least by who owns the facility and who's paying for it. Right. So the original Yankee Stadium and that land, that was that was owned by Colonel Rupert. That was owned by the team. Uh, eventually, it was sold and to the city. You know, and that's been that's what happens now. These facilities are owned and built by government, your and my money, because. The, it's you could call it a scam, you could call it brilliant, but the teams have somehow convinced these municipalities, these these locales, that uh, baseball is good for business and that they should fund these places. So that that has influenced, I think, the parks to some degree is who's building them and who owns them. You remember, you know, Charlie Evans. When he built Ebbets Field, when he finally got fed up with with inferior facilities, uh, he had to sell half interest in the team to build the park because it was so expensive for that time. That's how he eventually got out of ownership of the team, I believe, and had something to do with it. Yeah, and what of so, Ebbets? Uh, what of Ebbets? Because obviously that has a lot of um, uh, hayography oh my God. around it, right? Yeah, I loved I love Evans Field. I never got to go. Uh, this has nothing to do with the book. The lore of that stadium alone is just you know. Oh my God! Yeah, I saw. I mean, again, there's a there's a pretty sizable uh, a section on Evans Field and on the field leading up to it, and then on the Brooklyn Dodgers. And and, and I, I I'm wearing my Brooklyn Dodgers hat, by the way, while we're talking, but. Uh, no, I'm not really, but I do have one. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that there's nothing there. It, you know, really, there's nothing of the ballpark left. Sad. Uh, Washington Park, which they played in earlier in their in, in one of their other incarnations, the, the Dodgers. Uh, a wall of that park is still there in Brooklyn, but that park isn't. And and it's a shame. I mean, a lot of the big older, uh, like Polo Grounds and all this, there's very little still extent, if anything, to, to indicate that there was a ballpark there. 
And so in some ways, it would be sort of sad to use the book to go places to see that there's nothing left. How many of the parks that you uh, encompass in the, that are encompassed in this book uh, would you say fit that category, that, that there are literally nothing, there is nothing there, maybe save a plaque or maybe even nothing, literally nothing? Uh, I, it would be a guess because I haven't counted. Uh, but I think the majority of the facilities are gone because uh, part of the reason in the New York City area, New York, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, that people kept moving in their early days is because land was valuable. And it was too valuable to be used as a ballpark. And that has to do with a lot of inner city ballparks. The, the land was was too valuable for housing or commercial development. If you random a guess, you know, like how many of these, obviously this is a comprehensive attempt uh, for all of the New York state, right? How many, how many parks would you say have, have still sort of lived on in some way, shape or form, even if it's just a plaque versus just completely gone? Mo- most of them are completely gone. Although I couldn't give you an exact number because the land became too valuable to use for housing or for city expansion or industrial. And uh, so the majority of them are gone. Which, you know, is is sad in and of itself, right? But it's it's progress, quote unquote, right? Because, you know, I, I you can make more money building houses or, you know, apartment buildings or, or retail, I guess, versus trying to make a living selling the professional baseball game, maybe. Well, the history of ballparks is interesting because it shows the history of development patterns as well. Because remember, initially ballparks were built on empty land that tended to be, although outside of where housing was located or industrial sites, it had to be walkable or streetcarable for most people to get there. And often a lot of the early parks were located outside of municipal areas because that way you could play Sunday baseball and you wouldn't get shut down when the blue laws were still in effect. Because Sunday was the main day when people were off work. There was still the six day work week. So if you wanted, and this is before lights. So if people wanted to attend a game, you had to do it on a Sunday. A lot of the time people couldn't get off in the afternoons to go to a game. So it's they started outside of the centers, then they became built in the center of town, a lot of the later parks. Then they were moved when like Ebbets Field and all them, when there was, you couldn't park there because most people went to driving. Then they were moved to areas where you could have parking lots. And now we're seeing them all move back into town again because they're building development around it around the ballpark they're building how they're building uh shops and and uh restaurants and and various things and using it as a as a restoration vehicle for uh downtowns for inner core and it just reflects the settlement patterns uh too of of america of moving of establishing housing in the inner city and then after world war ii moving out and then moving back in again no, it's it's very much an architecture slash real estate thing. I mean, Robert Moses, right? The, the Shea Stadium's existence, right, is is 
completely due to him, right? Uh, it's, it's all it's urban planning, right? All that kind of stuff. And and it's interesting you bring that up because you know a lot of these uh, newer baseball owners, in particular, some other sports too, um, are really trying to create year round destination environments around the ballpark. Uh, the the Atlanta Braves is an example, right? Literally just built an office park around that their new stadium, right? Uh, ambiance be damned, uh, you know, artificiality, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, noted, but um, that seems to be the model going forward in order to truly make this a viable business proposition in, in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I I mean, we can get into a whole thing about modern ballparks. And of course, I don't talk about it in the book. And so it's really outside of the realm. It's more just experiential for me. And on one hand, yeah, I understand people want to make money. I get it. You got, and a lot of these facilities are ridiculously expensive. Ridiculously expensive. It, it puts baseball out of the reach of uh, a lot of communities. And that's why some of the, the recent maneuvers uh, of Major League Baseball really frustrates me because and where I think these older stadiums could come into play, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, because you could easily, yeah, they're not perfect, but they could they could be, as been shown, reused for baseball and give these small communities a focal point, another focal point, uh, an industry, a something a pride at which, which I think removing minor league baseball, uh, you know, cutting it by, by cutting a quarter of the teams is really going to negatively impact a lot of these communities where the baseball was uh, stadium was an important part of it. Yeah. And, um, and the commercialization of that and the, frankly, the um, uh, trickle down, if you willness of, uh, stadium economics, right? So what used to be sort of a, okay, we've got one of 30 major league baseball teams. And, you know, if, if, you, if the city and the region doesn't come up with the dollars to at least, you know, help us pay for the land or whatever, uh, we'll go to another location. Well, I think that that dynamic now is more, uh, uh, uh you know, pointed now in smaller markets in the minor leagues where, you know, there's less of those teams around and a tightening, if you will, of the noose by um, by Major League Baseball to kind of oversee or at least uh, coordinate such. Right. So I don't know, maybe that's just old man yelling at the clouds here. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not so sure that's all going to work out well. It's 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 uh, look, I'm almost 70 and I I definitely have old man syndrome. I mean, I've always liked old stuff, but it's become even more pronounced as the world moves away from a lot of it. And yeah, I'd much rather be sitting in an old stadium with some vibe than, than these newer facilities. And, you know, I don't need to have a crab salad sandwich uh, that costs $20, you know. <laughs> now I like going to the national stadium and, and, and having the, and having the, uh, half smoke, you know, the guy, the, the black hot dog guy. Uh, but yeah, I don't need to be at, at the Mariner stadium and, and, and have them delivering sushi to me, you know, <laughs> it's nice, but I don't need it. 
All right. One last thing I want to ask you, though, uh, and we, we oh, yeah, sure. one one location in particular, which I think is just uh, 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 I don't know if it encapsulates the, the entirety of your book, really, uh, in terms of uh, as, as an example. But it's certainly a uh, a stadium uh, in New York and particularly New York City's history that has such a, a long arc of of history uh, and, and, and in different incarnations, too. And that's the old polo grounds. Um but there are four versions of them, if you will, depending on how how tightly you squint. Um, maybe just I think they count, on, I think on the importance of the Apollo grounds is, is baseball history, right there. I think they counted five in the book on the Apollo grounds. I'm looking for the the book right now. No, you may be uh, right. I think I there's conjecture as to which there are. Some people put it at four, but yeah, uh, I agree. Here it is. This is this is a book. If you really want to read about the Apollo grounds. McFarland Historic Ballparks, the Polo Grounds, that was headed, edited by Stu Thornley. It's you, that's the book you need. I just summarize what what they they've put forward in this book, but they call it um, five. At least Ron Selter, if I'm pronouncing his name right, he says he says the five Polo Grounds ballparks. So, yeah, that I know people who went to the polo grounds as kids and, yeah, talk about uh, a, a strangely shaped, at least in the, the, the version that was still around when the Giants left New York. Yeah, or the Mets uh, the first couple of years when they came back to town where they yes, originated. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it, it still there's lots of nostalgia around it. Uh the stairs from the subway, I believe, are still there, but the the park's gone. Uh, but that ballpark went through a lot of different uh, machinations uh, in its various locations. There's a lot of funny stories. And, and again, this book is the be-all, end-all, which I just tried to summarize in mine and talking about how when you had – the predecessor of the Yankees and the predecessor of the, of the giants playing there, you know, they would take turns, but uh, because they divide the ballpark in half and have canvas there. And then with the ball rolled underneath, they, you know, what it's still in play. And, and there are all sorts of crazy things that happen there. Of course, at one version of the polo grounds, I believe, is that where Ty Cobb climbed into the stands and beat one of the fans senseless? I th that may be the uh, old Coogan's Bluff version, yeah? Yeah, I, I think so. And there's all sorts of stories, and John McGraw was a character. And, you know, the Polo Grounds is the shot heard, heard around the world. I mean, there's all sorts of great – that's the thing which I do include in the book. Not statistics so much, but where these great occurrences, you know, Abbott's Field is where uh, uh, Gil Hodges hit four home runs in one game. And, you know, the whole thing of hit the, hit the scoreboard, you know, win a free suit uh, or hit the clock, you know, uh, where did what, what you know, where did they film the natural? Where did uh, uh, Moonlight Graham play in the majors with the giants that those sorts of things i think that that's fascinating and i i do have that kind of information in the book no and i think that's great i mean this is this is 
part of the reason why we do this this little show, uh, you know, um, it also probably inspires people to uh, go out of their way when they're traveling, in this case, around New York State, uh, especially if there are um, some vestiges of what was beforehand, right? Even if it's just a plaque or, a, you know, a, an outline in a parking lot or something like that. Or, God forbid, there's actually the still standing structure from whatever and it's now housing, you know, a, a summertime three month, uh, you know, bat, wooden bat league. Um, it's all part of the rich fabric and history of um, America's longest lasting and original, if you will, professional sport. And um, you only have 49 states to go, Bob. So, you know, I think you've created a little niche. for yourself. <laughs> I, I'd like to do a North Carolina version uh, because we have a lot of great baseball here, but there's been some great books written about North Carolina baseball. So I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I would, I'm hopeful that next summer, spring and summer, I will be touring the extent ballparks that I mentioned and maybe a few more in New York state with the book once it's out to see the wooden bat and the few minor leaguers uh, playing in these stadiums. And I hope people will join me there because I, I encourage people to go to go to these places and see these teams play. I, I, I think it's, it's great that it's still there, but I think it's unfortunate that real, and you can argue this all you want to, <laughs> Real baseball, which went from the majors to the minors, and then now is it seems to be being shoved down into these wooden bat and American Legion ball. Uh, that's where that's where you're going to see the real game, and to experience it more like it was experienced in the early 20th century, without the beer drinkers hitting, without Ty Cobb climbing in the feet in the stands and beating the crap out of you or or, just the, or the players fighting or or whatever <laughs> all right our great thanks to bob carlin for all of this great information and uh insight into the history, the uh, structural and beyond history of New York's uh, baseball uh, prominence. Uh, the book uh, is called New York's Great Lost Ballparks. Uh, it is published by SUNY Press, uh, and it is an Excelsior edition, which I guess makes it super extra special. It's uh, 299 pages of uh, deep uh, New York baseball history uh, goodness and uh, you will uh, be glad you did shall we say uh, to have purchased said book you can do so most efficiently and frankly uh, most uh, generously for us at least by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com just search up this episode number 282 with Bob Carlin and uh, you'll find convenient links to uh, this book and when you do so we'll get a couple of uh, nickels and dimes more nickels than dimes frankly of referral love uh, when you get whisked to Amazon to get the paperback or Kindle version. Uh, and we appreciate you doing so. Uh, we'll also have a link up to, to uh, one of Bob's um, uh, other books, one or two other books in the realm of banjo as well. The Banjo and Illustrated History is probably the most uh, prominent of those. Uh, and even if you're not in a banjo an aficionado, uh, just the, the sheer uh, intricacy of of learning sort of the, the instrument. I, Bela Fleck was on uh, Mark Maron's podcast uh, last week. Uh, not sort of an area I'm generally interested in, 
but I learned a whole lot about sort of the uh, the uh, uniqueness of the the instrument, its history, uh, its contributions to American music, and not just sort of the bluegrassy, you know, southern kind of. Uh, 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 most that most people sort of uh, associate it with fascinating stuff. And, and, and you could learn um, a whole lot from, from uh, books that uh, Bob has uh, uh, written. And of course, uh, also the music as well. So plenty of that too. You can find more about Bob Carlin uh, on his website at Bob Carlin music, B O B Carlin, C A R L I N music.com. Bob Carlin music.com. Also, he's very active on Facebook too. And uh, while you're online, visit our website, again, bookmark it to uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you'll find all of our old episodes, all the ones to come as well. You can share them with friends. You can just stream them right from the site. Subscribe or follow us wherever you podcast. Uh, we're all over the place. You cannot avoid us. Just search up Good Seats Still Available. And uh, if it doesn't populate before you finish writing that term out, uh, well, I'd be surprised. Uh, and just uh, that's the best way to make sure you get all of our episodes. On uh, social media, you'll find us on Twitter at Good Seat Still. You'll find us on Facebook uh, at Good Seat Still Available. You'll also find us uh, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, we believe we're going to have the tag Good Seats Still Available on YouTube as well. But uh, before that uh, handle comes along, uh, you can find us there as well. And you can stream all of our episodes there too. How about that? Email is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Please, by all means, send us some. Keep it clean and keep it nice. We appreciate it. And um, we thank you, Jerry Payne, for all of your audio excellence this week, as always. Thank you for listening. And let's send you out uh, with a little Bob Carla music, shall we? Yes. Here's one uh, that we like from one of his uh, previous albums. It's called The Falls of Richmond. Please uh, enjoy it. And uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, go Yankees, <laughs> if you're still around when you hear this episode. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Thanks.